has overwhelmed our past, our present, and reaches all the way into eternity in the future. Thank you that you have thought of everything related to our lives. You've provided everything in your Son. And we, Lord, we thank you so much for your love that was behind his sacrifice and your provision for our forgiveness and the possibility of relationship with you. And we pray that tonight as we study your word this evening, that you continue to enlarge our understanding of you and deepen our personal relationship with you tonight as we study this book of Job. Lord, we love to open up your word because we have experienced the power of it personally to be able to just read it and experience the infusion of spiritual strength and virtue in our lives, the cleansing that it does, the instruction, all of these wonderful things that this living book produces within our lives. And we know it's your Holy Spirit, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would do that same work in our hearts now as we open it once again. We look to you for it, Lord. Thank you for communion with you through your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Genesis, or Genesis, let's not backtrack. <laughs> We've got to Job. Let's stay there. So Job, chapter 38. Sunday night, our journey through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them. Get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands this evening. And... You can follow along. We try to cover several chapters in the evening, and uh, you can get lost without being able to follow along with your own eyes. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, make that your Bible, just a gift from the Lord. Now, we come into the final section of the book of Job this evening where God speaks, and he essentially is going to give Job his day in court. And throughout this uh, Job's series of speeches to his friends, he had expressed a longing to get God into a courtroom so that he could begin to cross-examine God and question him as to why he was doing all of these things in his life. And at times he had brought, uh, bought into the, the proposition of his friends that the reason for all of his suffering was because of God punishing him for secret sin or hypocrisy, which wasn't true at all. But he came to believe that that must be what God was doing in his life. And since he knew that he was not guilty of secret sin or hypocrisy, then he allowed his mind to go into the place that if God is really doing that to me, then he is unjust and he is unfair in his dealings with me and to charge God with unrighteousness or with uh, injustice is quite a charge to bring against the true and the living God. And, and uh, Job's a little, he's lost it a little bit and God's going to bring him back. But that was his uh, concern. And so more than once in the book of Job, he crossed a line where he began to accuse God of wrongdoing in his life. And whenever a child of God does that, Job or any of us, we openly, vocally, other people are listening, we begin to accuse God of mishandling our life or uh, wrongdoing in our life, then we are openly casting doubt in the minds of the listeners uh, upon the goodness and the righteousness and justice of God. And Job had done that more than once. 
Well, since Job had complained so bitterly against God and he had spoken so authoritatively, and he had. I mean, if we really took the time to tear into each of the statements of Job, some of the things that he said to God and about God would just almost make you cringe. And uh, the greatness of the trial, of course, we understand it in some respect. But he had spoken so authoritatively about what God should or shouldn't be doing. And thus, when a person does that, by implication, we are indicating that we are smarter than God and we are wiser than God. And so why is he doing this when anybody can see, especially me, that it ought to be handled in a different way? And so uh, he was communicating that he could run things a little bit better than God. And so God decided to give Job in these final chapters of Job uh, the God test, kind of an entrance exam for being God. And uh, so in this section of Job chapters 38 through 41, God poses a series of 70 questions of Job that anyone that wants to take over God's job for him ought to not only be able to answer one of them or five of them, but ought to be able to easily answer all 70 of them. And the fascinating thing is that of the 70 questions that God is going to pose to Job in this section, Job is not going to be able to answer a single one. So he fails the God test miserably and wonderfully, by the way, when it all uh, wraps up. Sometimes you hear people, and it even happens with Christians, where they will question the decision-making of God in their life or even uh, his justice concerning some circumstance in their life. And it's usually uh, prefaced by, you know, if I were God, then I would do this, or God, how come you? And sometimes there's a shaking fist that's involved or sometimes just the fist is being shaken in our own hearts and in our own minds at, at God. And if we're ever tempted to do that, to come to a circumstance in our life where we don't understand that circumstance and we want to call God into question uh, related to His wisdom and His power and His love in our life. It's always good to go back to the book of Job, chapters 38 through 41, and then ask those, uh, ask those same questions that God asked of Job. Ask them of ourselves, and uh, we'll find out that we are about as well qualified to do God's job for Him as Job was which means we're not qualified at all. Now, God does this, poses these 70-plus questions to Job uh, in, not in a desire to uh, needlessly humiliate or to mock Job, but to teach him a very, very important lesson which we will address at the end of the section. And so in this first address, and God is going to address Job twice in these chapters, in the first address or the first challenge to Job, God addressed the question, shall mortal men contend with God? In other words, does man possess the wisdom and the power necessary to contend with God? And if you're going to oppose somebody and you're going to contend with somebody in the hopes of winning, whether in a boxing ring or whether in a court of law, you need to possess a greater wisdom and a greater power than the one that you're contending with. And so uh, this is, uh, here is this prefacing of things here to see whether Job does possess the wisdom or the power necessary or man does in general to contend with God. And of course, 
the answer to that is, is that we don't. And these questions are going to really uh, reveal to Job. We get to listen in on it because we're like Job and we can be tempted to follow him in these things. And so we want to learn from his, his life and his mistakes. But God is going to really humble him in order to show him how powerless he is, uh, what a lack of wisdom and knowledge that he has, and how uh, very, very uh, severely finite uh, he is. And so we pick it up in chapter 38. And the Lord answered Job. So we remember Elihu is continuing to speak there in chapter 37. And again, we don't know how long he would have gone. God just jumps in here at this point. Uh, he's heard everything that uh, he needs to hear. The discussion has gone on long enough. And so he interrupts Elihu, and then he answers Job. And that word answered is important to notice because it tells us that God was listening to everything that Job's friends were saying and everything that Job said. It is uh, a healthy influence upon our speech to realize that God does listen to our conversations. And so there isn't like this. Sometimes you go into the airport and they've got like these little smoking things that people can go into. And it's like a little compartment and or maybe electronics or whatever the deal is. Like you can go in there and you don't really exist for a few minutes or something. And you come back out in the general population. Everything that we say whether we're speaking to our husband or our wife or speaking with our peers or complaining or worshiping God and praising Him, He hears everything. And so a lot of questions have been posed related to Him. And so He's been listening and He has an answer to Job concerning all of His questions. And He, he answered Job out of the whirlwind. Now the Bible teaches that God the Father is a spirit and so we can't see Him. And some people go, oh my, what in the world? I don't know. I don't know everything about God. Again, you've got the finite in relationship with the infinite. You get used to mystery. All I know is that it's great, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But He is spirit. And so often in the Old Testament, when God the Father would manifest Himself, say with Moses or uh, 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 coming down and with His presence, on Mount Sinai to give the law to Moses or inhabiting the tabernacle, inhabiting uh, the temple. Uh, because he can't be seen, he would cause some kind of a physical manifestation to occur so people could, would realize uh, this is God uh, appearing in our midst here uh, related to what it is that we're doing. And so with Job, he comes in a whirlwind. You might um, just uh, think of it as like kind of a uh, a tornado cloud a little bit or some kind of a swirling that isn't like blowing the whole room all over the place, but just some physical manifestation uh, of, of his uh, presence. And so he came out and spoke to Job out of the whirlwind and he said, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. In verse 2, he encapsulates all of Job's long speeches and his long arguments. God is able to make things very, very concise. He encapsulates all of Job's arguments there in, in verse 2. And he declares that Job had darkened counsel. In other words, instead of shedding any light on the situation in speaking to his friends and others who were listening to these discussions, what he had spoken was, uh, it, it 
what it accomplishes was to cast doubt upon the morality or the goodness, the righteousness, and the justice of God. He hadn't brought light. and certainly hadn't brought any spiritual light or any accurate revelation related to God into the conversation. He had just merely uh, made things darker in what he had said. And then when God speaks about words without knowledge, the idea is that Job had spoken a lot of words without sufficient knowledge. In fact, he had spoken out of a considerable ignorance because the fact of the matter is that Job didn't know uh, any more than his three friends what was going on in his life what was going on in the heavenly scene related to his life. He was as ignorant as they were. And his speculations were just as great as speculations as his, his friends were. And so it didn't keep him from speaking, but what he spoke was in, uh, in ignorance. And Job had, when he spoke, he was absolutely convinced that his speeches were filled with wisdom and knowledge and spiritual light. And God let him know in one sentence that the exact opposite uh, was true. Uh, one translation, uh, Bible translation of, of verse 2 has God saying, Why are you using your ignorance to deny my providence? <laughs> That's very well put. And he was just speaking in ignorance. And in his ignorance, he was harming the reputation of God, though he didn't realize how fully he was doing so. In verse 3, he instructed Job to prepare himself uh, like a man for a test, prepare yourself like a man, literally to gird up your loins like a man. In those days, they wore robes, and so the robes were down all the way to your ankles. And so if you were going to engage in combat or in hard labor, something like that, you would take that robe from down here and you would pull it up through your belt and you'd have a, instantly a pair of culottes. Uh, you'd have a pair of shorts immediately so that you wouldn't get tangled up in your robe in the wrestling match. You want to wrestle with God? You want to contend with God? You want to fight with God? All right, well, gird up your loins here and let's get ready. In this corner, Job. And in this corner, the still heavyweight champion of the universe, you know. And so, all right, you want this fight? You want to do this thing? You wanted this confrontation? And, uh, and, and so get ready to do it. And then God said, I will answer you and you shall answer me. So God didn't need to stop and hear all of Job's questions again. He had already listened to everything Job had to say. Now it was time for Job to listen to what God had to say. The whole thing turns around. Job is hoping for a court hearing with God in which he is the uh, plaintiff. He is the wronged party. And he is going to prosecute uh, the one who has done the wrong. He's going to prosecute God. That's how he thinks this whole thing is going to come down. When it finally happens here, and it's seen in the sanity of heaven, God is the injured party. His reputation before man has been injured. And so here is Job, instead of him being having the high-handed place in this scene, he becomes the defendant. It's the exact opposite of, of what he anticipated. And so he declared that, but he did declare in his speeches at one point that if God did grant him a day in court with God, that he'd even be willing to let God go first. And so obviously God heard that. And so God does exactly uh, that. Now, by the way, 
before we get into this test, this is a great test for every person to take who rejects God or rejects uh, his Savior, Jesus, and thinks that one day I'm going to stand before God and at that white throne judgment, and I've got a few things to say to him, and I'm going to set him straight. It will not happen. I, I beg you. I, it, will be, it, it, it will be worse than embarrassing because the consequences will be so severe at that particular point. Man is no match for God on, on any level. Nobody will be able to hold their own before the Father and in judgment or before Jesus. That's why we need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so God begins now his questioning of Job, this, so you want to be God test? Uh, and he begins in verse 4 by asking him about the wonders of the earth. And by the way, I think God could ask these questions here of any evolutionist, and it would shut their mouth as well. And so God said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, where were you when I created the earth? Job wasn't even, as the old saying goes, a twinkle in his father's eye at that point. He was nowhere to be seen. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I measured the earth? And then surely you know. I mean, you know so much about everything. Or who stretched the line upon it and to what were its foundations fastened or who laid its cornerstone? In other words, who cre- were you there when I created the earth? I measured it exactly for what it's supposed to be. I put it into its orbit. I gave it a context of the universe and all of these other planets that exist in order to hold it into the orbit that allows human life to be on this particular planet this group of people that I love and want a relationship with, Job, I am kind of drawing a blank on whether you were there or not. And, of course, Job wasn't there. And he speaks of this creation of the earth when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God, speaking of angels, shouted for joy. And so was Job around at the time of the creation of the world to hear the praise of the stars and the praise of the angels over this creation of the earth. Job, where were you when all of this took place? And then he goes on to speak about the creation of the sea and the establishment of the sea. Or who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst forth and issued from its womb? When I made the clouds its garment and the thick darkness its swaddling band? When I created the seas and, and not only created the seas but the entire system in terms of clouds and the weather systems that takes water from the sea and puts it over the earth and returns that water then back to the sea. The whole entire uh, kit and caboodle, uh, when I made the clouds its garment and the thick darkness its swaddling clothes, when I fixed my limit upon the sea and I set bars and doors, when I said, this far you may come but no further, and there your proud waves must stop. Job, were you there when I did that? And when the earth was original in its original condition before the days of, of the creation, the whole earth was covered with water. 
Then as a part of the creation, God took and he separated the land from the seas and he established the boundaries for the seas. And Job wasn't around for that. And he asked Job whether he sets the, ever set the boundaries for the seas or set the boundaries for the waves. I remember one time several years ago. Now, I don't know, I don't know when was the last time you bossed a wave around and had any success. Our family was over on the coast, I think it was in Carmel, and the waves there and the grandkids were real small at that time. And so we were running up, the waves would then pull out, you know, and we'd run as far as we could, you know, before the next one came in, and we would shout at the waves to stop. And, of course, they obeyed us magnificently. And we ran back up the beach and back and forth, and it's a thing you do with your grandkids. You have to be there. And... uh, but we had, I had very little success bossing the waves around on that day. And so, pretty finite. God is able to establish the boundary of the seas all around the world. We can't even stop a wave even once. Have you commanded the morning? And he turns now, again, speaking of creation, to uh, the morning, the dawn. Have you commanded the dawn since your uh, days began? Job, have you ever uh, uh, been able to... Uh, have the dawn start earlier than its established place. You know where you kind of wake up like 3 in the morning, you can't sleep anymore, and you don't want to wait for the dawn? So you head out the front door and you order the dawn to appear. And who does that? Nobody can do that. Nobody has the power uh, to do that. So have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and of the... and the wicked be shaken out of it. It takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. From the wicked, their light, speaking of darkness, is withheld and and the upraised arm is broken. And so God speaks about the dawn and and the fact that how uh, he has established the dawn, of course, in light, related to life. But he also, interestingly enough, speaks of the fact that he uses dawn in a uh, 24-hour cycle every single day in order to uh, beat back wickedness and crime and the bad guys because those people like to do their work in the night and so God brings the dawn each day as a deterrent to the expansion of wickedness in the human condition. So every 24 hours, God breaks in in a cycle and he disrupts the effort and the expansion of wickedness in the world. Could Job do that? No, Job couldn't do that. He said, have you entered the springs of the sea? And it's uh, interesting, it's only been in recent years that we have discovered through oceanography and all that we have discovered uh, some of the great springs, freshwater springs that are the source of water for the ocean. It's not just evaporation and rain and all of these things that are happening, but a great deal of the source of of the oceans and the seas around the world have a freshwater source at at, uh, at the, the bottom, uh, the ocean floor. And so have you entered, have you explored the springs of the sea? And here is God speaking of it thousands of years before we ever came uh, to understand it. Or have you uh, w- walked in search of the depths, the deepest parts of the seas? I don't know how far you can go down uh, in water before your ears hurt. But uh, 
pretty hard in Job's time to get down to the bottom of the sea. So only God knew these things. Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Job, do you know where the doors are that are the entrance to Hades, the waiting place before the coming of Christ to empty out Abraham's bosom? Job, do you know where that door is? Do you know what happens when a person dies and how they enter into that realm? Do you know anything about that, Job? Of course, Job didn't know anything about it. Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Can you measure that? God said, tell me if you know all of this. Feel free to break in any time and say that you can answer any of these questions. He said, there is a way. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place? Where do I store those things, Job? That you may take, uh, you may take it to its territory, that you may know the paths to its home. Do you know it because you were born then, because the number of your days is great? Do you know about, and he's speaking about the heavens here, about the source of light and the source of darkness in the universe? Have you entered the treasury of snow? Or have you seen the treasury of of hail? Do you know where I store that? Do you know how I produce that? Which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Uh, uh, Do you know that about the snow? Do you know that uh, about the hail? It's interesting that, uh, of course, Job had no idea how God made snow or how he made made, uh, hail. And it's interesting that God speaks of it in, in his a freedom to use it in a military sense. Uh, when the children of Israel under Joshua were entering into the conquest of the promised land, this great confederation of five kings that were uh, a part of Canaan came against him to fight against the children of Israel. And God used a supernatural means of hail in order to defeat that army. And the Bible tells us that those that were killed by the hail were greater than those that were killed in the battle. So God can... Uh, he can use these things, not only as the source of them, but he can use them however uh, he wants. And so he's used them in the past. The Bible teaches that he's going to use uh, these kind of natural uh, phenomenon and weather and hail and all of these kinds of things in the future as well. During the future invasion of Israel by Magog and her allies in Ezekiel chapter 38, as they make that great invasion, God says he's going to cause great hailstones to fall upon that whole military apparatus. In the book of Revelation, it says that during the great tribulation period, God is going to cause hail to come down upon this earth, hail that is in size a a talent in weight. You know what a talent weighs? 120 pounds. Can you imagine flying an F-16 through a hailstorm of 120 uh, pound uh, hail coming down? Can you imagine being in a house? Can you imagine being anywhere and finding protection from that, and so God reserves the right to use these natural means uh, to uh, for His purposes. He said, or uh, by verse 24, by what way is light diffused, or the east wind scattered over the earth? How does all of that happen, Job? And who has divided a channel for the overflowing water? In other words, when that rain just comes down like crazy out of a cloud, like it did. Very early in the morning, uh, here, last night, 
He says, do you make that opening? Do you know how that happens and that water just pours uh, out of that cloud? Or he said, who has not only divided a channel for the overflowing water, uh, but who has devised the path for a thunderbolt? I've never been able to say, boy, to my wife Karen, wouldn't it be great to see a, th- a thunderbolt right now? Thunderbolt right now. He said, nothing can't happen. Or to stop one if you're out golfing or something, lightning, thunder, in the middle of that. Or to cause it to rain on land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man, to satisfy the desolate waste and to cause a spring, to uh, cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? And so he speaks of all of these uh, aspects of the weather that, that God has provided for the whole cycle of everything that we have no control over at all. And from whose womb comes ice and the frost of heaven? Who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone and the surface of the deep is frozen. So we have no control over the weather, which is good. What would we have to talk about in about half of our conversations? If we didn't know if there wasn't uncertainty related to the weather. But we don't have control over the weather. The smallest thing about the weather, we don't have any control over it. How hot it's going to be, how cool it's going to be, whether it's going to be windy today or not be windy today or foggy today or not be foggy today. We have no control over that. We're completely uh, finite. And then he moves into the stars and he says, Can you, speaking to Job... Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring Mazaroth, bring out Mazaroth in its season or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Or do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? And so he speaks to him about uh, the fact that does Job have any ability to control the whole context of the universe? And all of these things, here's God, you think about this, on a daily basis, God keeps that whole universe uh, rolling rather magnificently, a lot better than I could do. I can't, e- I can't even identify the stars in the sky, let alone control them. He keeps them from all running into one another and all of these things. And they're all worked together again to have just the right pull upon the earth to keep it in a place and its distance from the sun so we don't all get fried and all of this kind of stuff. And he runs all of those things. We have no hope of, we hardly understand it, let alone have the ability to control any of, any of those things. And so you think about all of the design, all of the power uh, that is expressed in not only creating the universe, but having it run smoothly as it does in its proper orbit on a daily basis, all without little old me and little old you. God does that because we have no power to do the slightest thing related to that. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you cause it to rain by commanding it to rain. Or we'd never know a drought if we had the ability to do that. And so can you send out lightnings that they may go or, and say to you, here we are, is the lightning at your uh, command? And who has put wisdom in the mind and who has given understanding to the heart? It's kind of a, you ever think about your brain? 
Wait a second. I'm having a seizure. <laughs> You've got this entire electrical system up there and nutrients and mush and goo and all of this stuff. And we can remember stuff and we can think about stuff and we can analyze stuff. Who gave us this kind of a mind, the ability to think? Think about the human heart's ability to feel. Where do the feelings come from? And here we are, we're we're this thing. We've been created by God. And again, there's the brain and there's the emotion. But where does the emotion come and how does it connect with the will and the brain? And how do all of these, you know, electrons and neurons and all of this stuff that I don't know anything about come together to produce emotion and feeling and thought and concept and all of these things? God's created all of it. And who, by, who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can pour out the bottles of heaven when the dust hardens in clumps and the clods cling together? Who can uh, number the clouds and tip them over like uh, jars in order to make it rain? And then he moves in verse 39 to questioning Job away from like the physical universe to now ask him questions about Uh, the wonders of uh, animal life. He said, Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of, uh, of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their, li- in their lairs to lie in wait? Uh, Job, as it relates to the lion, as it, re- it relates to the young lions, are you the one that feeds them? In fact, Job could think to himself, if a single lion, let alone every lion in the world, depended upon my provision, my wisdom, my power, my provision, then all of them would starve and go extinct. And what God does here in this whole section now as he heads into the whole animal kingdom, as he speaks about ten different animals that are very, very different from one another, And all of these, these animals that he's going to speak about, a very broad cross-section uh, of animals, all of them speak of his creative genius. They speak of his providential care. In other words, God says, is saying, Job, I made them like that, and then I provide for them in the way that I have made them. And Job, in his complaints against God, he had intimated that He was able to run things a little bit better than the Lord. Uh, uh, but God is saying before the control of the universe could be turned over to him, uh, perhaps he could prove his qualifications by answering a few questions about the animal kingdom. And so here as it relates, he starts with the king of the beasts, the lion, and says, Job, do you feed them on a daily basis? And God has put a whole system together by which the animals of the world are created with a particular need for nutrition and for food. And he has supplied that food that they need. He said, who provides the food for the raven when its young ones cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Job, do you, do you keep the ravens alive anywhere, let alone worldwide? And God was letting Job know that he does that. And then he goes on in chapter 39 to talk about uh, the Uh, wild mountain goats. Do you know the time when wild mountain goats bear their young? 
And it's probably talking about a Nubian ibex, which is an animal that uh, lives in the wilderness regions of the Middle East. And what the, what the Nubian ibex does is when they bear their young, they go into a place of hiding to bear their young. In fact, there was a, 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 a publication in 1979 at that particular point in time where it was talking about archaeology and, and findings in the Middle East and had spoken about the fact that at that time, as recently as 1979, a very small number of people had ever witnessed the birth of a, a Nubian ibex a baby being born. And, and God made that animal in that way to go into hiding in, in the giving birth to its young. He said, or uh, can you mock the deer, uh, when the deer uh, gives birth? And can you uh, number the months that they fulfill? In other words, if you set the length of life uh, for deers, or do you know the time when they bear their young? In other words, the period of gestation for the deer, how long they're pregnant from the moment of of conception until the time that they give birth. And it's interesting, of course, Job didn't know that, and he certainly hadn't established that uh, in deer. You look at God, this gigantic, diverse creation that he has made in the animal kingdom, and all of these animals have varying gestation periods. Well, if it's all just evolution and what's the most efficient in all of this, this thing will all come down to seven months or nine months or 13 months or whatever the deal is. That's the same pressure that's being borne upon, and yet the animal kingdom has incredible diversity within it, just in the, in the realm of gestation. And God does it just to demonstrate His power and His wisdom. That he is, it, it doesn't have to be... It's not evolution for Him. He's bigger than evolution. So He's able to create all of these goofy animals. He's going to list some really goofy animals. You ever go to like the aquarium or you go to the zoo and you just look and you say, there is no way evolution had anything to do with that animal like that. It's got an eye over here and it's got an eye over here and it's got tentacle that goes over here and it's, that's the most inefficient creature I've ever seen in my whole life. You say, why in the world did you create that, God? Interest. Just to provide a little interest. What if he just created like 30 animals? And that's all we had. Oh, I'm like, I don't want to go to the zoo, Daddy. I think the same 30 animals. The diversity of fish and fowl and animal, just amazing. And not all of it has some gigantic significance in human history. It just speaks to us of how great God's power is and how infinite His wisdom is that He can create that kind of diversity just for fun, just for context for us, just for interest for us. And, and, and He loves to do it. You think gerbils have a 23 to 26-day gestation period. There'll be a quiz on this at the end of it. A giraffe, 14 to 15 months. Elephant, some of you may know, has the longest period, 600 to 660 days, almost two years. Gives you hope at <laughs> the ninth month, right? Oh, I could be an elephant. I think I am an elephant, but I, I know I'm not an elephant. I could... 
There could be another year and a half to this. They bow down and they bring forth their young. They deliver their offspring. Speaking of the deer, their young ones are healthy. They grow strong with grain. And then they depart. They leave their family, their mother. They depart and they don't return uh, to them. And so they become mature. They head off and then now they do their thing. Who made them like that to do that? And God made them to do that. He said, who set the wild uh, donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of the onager, whose home I have made in the wilderness, and the barren and the uh, I have made, uh, whose home I have made the wilderness and the barren land, his dwelling. He scorns the tumult of the city. He does not heed the shouts of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture. He searches after every green thing. And so, did Job have? Uh, have anything to do with the, again, the the beautiful oddities of this wild donkey, different from its cousin, a domesticated donkey. This particular donkey was one that uh, didn't, uh, doesn't, uh, likes to be free. It it, uh, defies uh, domestication. It is able, God is able to take that donkey and put it in the severest environments, physical environments of the world, and that is able to survive there on scant amounts of water and scant amounts of food. Again, his power, his, he created them and, and he gave them that ability to survive in that way. Job didn't have anything to do with it. We don't have anything to do with it. Again, speaking of God's great power and his, his wisdom, actually speaking of his wisdom uh, most specifically. He said, will the wild ox be willing to serve you? There is a domesticated ox, but this is speaking of an ox that, uh, that is a brother to that domesticated uh, ox, but is very different in that it, it defies uh, being uh, tamed in order to use for service, for plowing, for transportation. Will the wild ox be willing to serve you, Job? Will he be led by your manger? Can you bind the wild ox uh, in the furrow with ropes or will he plow the valleys behind you? Can you domesticate him and use him as a farm animal for agriculture? Will you trust him because his strength is great or will you... Or will you leave your labor to him? Will you trust him to bring home your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? And so the animal's untamable. Job knew what this animal was, knew that no matter what you did, you can't domesticate these animals. And God is saying, I made the one this way and I made the other this way. All of it just to speak of a creator to speak of my diversity, to speak of my ability to produce diversity, to speak of, of my wisdom. And then he, and, and of course the idea that God is making to Job here is that if you can't tame this animal, then you have no hope of taming uh, its creator. And so Job is getting the drift of what God is saying to him here. And then he moves on to speak of the ostrich. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But are her wings and pinions like the kindly stork? So here you've got a bird, an ostrich. What a weird old animal that thing is, isn't it? Fascinating just to watch. The legs and the hips on that thing. I like to do a little bicycling, you know. I wish I had legs and hips like that. 
I'd be doing 500-mile rides and all kinds of things. So here they are. There's a goofy kind of animal, and they've got God gives them wings. But what good are they? The stork has these wonderful wings, goes up, flies, delivers babies. So they fly around, and, and all, here's, here's this bird that got wings and can't do anything, can't fly with those wings. And yet God is saying, not making any apologies. It's not like, boy, I hit the deadline, and we had to have these animals ready to roll, and I just didn't quite able to finish off that ostrich. He said, I made them like this. Now, something about being 300 pounds and 7 feet tall, that's hard to get anything up in the air, which is how big ostriches get. But... So they're really a quirky kind of animal. And, and so they're odd. They've got wings, but they can't fly. And he said, for she leaves her eggs on the ground and she warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them. She lays her eggs right out in the open where any other animal or anything could just walk along and crush them or that a wild beast may break them. And she treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. In other words, she's absolutely devoid of any maternal instinct. And God says, I, I made, this is what I made her like, unlike anything else in the whole wide world, just to speak of, of my creative ability and wisdom. Her labor is in vain without concern because God has deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. She's just as dumb as a doorknob, the ostrich, and yet, uh, 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 and yet a creation of God. And God then never likes to leave an animal on a bad note. So when she lifts herself on high, in other words, she starts to run, she scorns the horse and its rider. She can reach 40 miles an hour. An ostrich can run. That's faster than a horse. And so this is, God says, all of these weird things. Did you make this? Is this the product of your wisdom? And yet this animal has its place in the whole big picture of things. That testify to me. Have you rid, uh, given the horse strength? Talking about a war horse rather than a farm horse. Have you closed, clothed his neck with thunder? And so he describes the creation of a horse. And I tell you, a horse has got to be one of the most majestic creations of God. I mean, the power. He talks about his strength there. Have you given the horse strength? Uh, another big no uh, from Job on that. God created a horse. Horses kind of scare me because I'm not that familiar with them. Yeah, I think if I got familiar with them, I'd probably be in like rodeos and stuff. <laughs> Listen, I can create any old reality I want in my mind. So I probably would. I'd be a big time like rodeo guy and all that stuff. And I don't even know the lingo. I'm trying to think the word, you know, barrel guy and running around all those things and all that stuff. So, you know, you can see it in me, the potential. I've only been on a horse a few times. Once at Knott's Berry Farm. So I know quite a bit about horses. One time a, a friend and a few friends got together and uh, we went out a backpacking thing on horses up to Kennedy Meadows or something like that. I've never been on a horse that long my whole life, and you're climbing all the way up this thing. And, and I mean, that goes a long way down to that valley floor on certain places and all. Hey, boy, that's a long way to fall there. This horse know what it's doing? Ah, it doesn't want to die any more than you do. Gotcha. You have a gift for comfort. 
So he told me a little bit about how to deal with the horse, the right, the left, the whole deal and everything. And so we get on this kind of flat spot. And it's all just this sheer rock that we're on this kind of flat spot. And the horses are kind of moving like this a little bit because they got the metal uh, horseshoes. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> on the stone and they're moving and stuff. I was a little unsettled by that because the horse that I was on, right to the back of me was just a sheer drop on the thing. And I wanted that horse to move up a little bit uh, toward the other horses where these experienced horsemen were. And so I took and I pulled on the reins with the idea that it would go forward. I didn't realize that's that's reverse. That's telling the horse to go backwards. So I got this thing backing up on a cliff. I still, I, have, I still experience a little shortness of breath when I tell the story. Thinking, so we're backing up a little bit, and then one of the guys said, no, no, that's, that, you're backing the horse up. Don't do that. Okay, so what's the giddy-up thing to get the thing forward? But they are an amazing creature. Really, they are. And he talks about, have you given the horse uh, strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Speaking of the mane flying as it runs can you frighten him uh, like a locust? He defies uh, being frightened. His majestic snorting strikes tears. His paw- he paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. And then in battle, he gallops into the clash of arms. He's eager to enter into uh, a battle. He's not frightened by it at all. And God made him that way. He mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the, the weaponry going against him as he's uh, devouring here the distance between the person that's riding him and where the battle is going to be engaged. And he devours that distance with fierceness and rage. I mean, the language is beautiful. Uh, Nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet has sounded. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, aha, and he smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains and shouting. And and so he's eager to get into that battle, not frightened by it at all. And it's amazing to watch them in that kind of a context. And God had created the horse to be that. Job hadn't done that. And then the Lord says, does the hawk fly at your wisdom and uh, spread its wings toward the south? It's beautiful to watch a hawk, isn't it? Fly. I love birds. I really do. Always, any bird that I see, it always reminds me of the fact that God's going to provide for me and he's going to provide for us. If he knows how to take care of the birds of the air, he knows how to take care of us. He cares more about us than the birds of the air, and he cares about the birds of the air. So it's saying a lot. And you watch, you watch a hawk as he's just floating, and again, it's just one of the most majestic things to just watch that. And what you, we are watching is the wisdom of God, that God is able to create something that is able to fly that way. And then to give it the instincts there, spread its wings toward the south, to migrate to the south uh, when the time is right. Does the eagle mount up at your command? They never, I can't boss them around. And make its nest on high. On the rock it dwells and resides. On the crag of the rock and the stronghold. And from there it spies out the prey. Its eyes observe from afar. Its young ones suck up blood. And where the slain are, there it is. So here is God. He has made uh, the eagle. And he's given it the instinct to establish its nest way up in the high mountain uh, parts. High elevation. 
And yet he has added with that instinct to nest it so high in altitude and eyesight with it to be able to look at the valley floor and see a source of food when it emerges. And who could do that? But God, what if, he had to, if God had taken and given them the instinct to, to nest at high elevations and then made them all nearsighted? God didn't do that. It's just this perfect combination that God has done. I mean, every, everywhere you want to look in the creation, that's why the Bible teaches that, that the creation speaks of a creator and the design speaks of a designer. Just it's, it's, it's a marvel to look at. Anywhere you want to look, it's, God says, look in the heavens, look at the animal kingdom, look under the microscope, look anywhere you want. And it testifies to the wisdom of God. And so God has spoken these things to Job and asked him these questions as it relates uh, to the animal kingdom. And then in chapter 40, uh, the Lord uh, then speaks to Job and answered him and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? And he who rebukes God, let him answer it. And so God demanded an answer of Job. In other words, the person that's going to contend with God, they're going to correct God or rebuke God or haul him into court and not only bring a case against him, but win that case ought to have an answer to not only uh, any of these questions or some of these questions, but all of these questions. And to correct God means that there's a fault in God that needs correcting. It's to accuse God of wrongdoing. And notice Job's response to this first kind of test that that God put Job through. And Job answered the Lord and he said, Behold, I am vile. Literally, I am small and insignificant. He's seen himself. Now, that's the true assessment of a human being. We come to that true assessment when we see ourselves in the light of God. And that's what's happened to Job here. And so uh, earlier he had kind of boldly declared, you know, to God, then call and I will answer or let me speak and then you respond. And then now he says, I am vile. What shall I answer you? He said, I lay my hand over my mouth. It's not a bad thing to do. He's saying, I opened up my mouth and it has gotten me in so much trouble. I don't want to say anything at this point. I think all of us have experienced that a time or two, perhaps in our lives. He said, once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. And so he regrets what he had already said. He regrets the consequences that that has brought into his life. But he hasn't yet repented here. He regrets that what he has said has put him in the hot seat. But that's not repentance. Repentance is not regretting the consequences. Um, It's regretting that I committed the sin at all. Not because of the consequences that uh, I am incurring, but because how that sin has reflected upon God. And he is going to come to a full repentance, and we'll read about that in uh, chapter uh, 42. But he said, I have spoken, but I will not answer yes twice, but I will proceed no further. And, and so he has uh, shuts down and, and he is 
thinking to himself, what in the world was I thinking to ever say these things, talking so brashly about myself and so casually about God, and, and then here I am in this place, and, and I can't answer a single question in the God test. We're going to stop there tonight because I don't want to rush through, um, and obviously well, we wouldn't even be able to rush through uh, what's left here, but we wouldn't want to do that anyway. God's doing an interesting thing here because we'll pick it up next week and the Lord is going to become, begin a second questioning of Job. The first inquiry that he makes of Job is to, uh, question, is to question Job as it relates to his wisdom and to magnify, uh, or to magnify the greatness of God's wisdom and the severe limitations of man's wisdom. In the second address that he gets into, God is going to establish not the issue of wisdom, but the issue of power and speak to Job about the greatness of his power, God's power, as opposed to how finite our power is. And so God has got a a tremendous um, thing that he's doing here, very ordered thing that he's doing in Job's life. And we'll just need to pause right now and uh, pick that up next week. I'd like the worship team to come forward at this point in time. Lead us in a couple of worship songs to, as we close out the service, and then I'll come back up and, prayer and pray and we'll officially close out. But there's so much here that just speaks of the awe, uh, that produces an awe in us related to God, how big he is, how wise he is how qualified he is to be God and how unqualified each of us are to be God. And so what a waste of time it is really to spend our time questioning him.